0: Welcome back to another episode of Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. That's
1: right. This month, we'll be talking about sedative hypnotics.
0: Specifically, we'll be talking about sedative hypnotic drug withdrawal syndromes, both the recognition of such syndromes and their appropriate treatment. This episode's
1: content was curated by Dr. Cynthia Santos of Emory University Hospital and Dr. Ruben Olmedo, who's director of the Division of Toxicology at Mount Sinai Hospital.
0: I think it's also important to note that although we will be discussing some of the most important and common withdrawal patterns encountered in the emergency department, we will not be discussing perhaps the most common, which of course is alcohol withdrawal.
1: That's right. If you wanted to review alcohol withdrawal, EB Medicine covered this in detail in prior issues. You can refer to the July 2010 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice or the June 2015 critical care issue. So let's get started. Jeff, why do you think EB Medicine chose this topic for the March issue?
0: Well, as we all know, prescription drug abuse is becoming, or maybe it already has become, an epidemic in the United States. According to the Drug Abuse Warning Network, sedative hypnotics were the second most common drug class to cause an ED visit after opiates. Sedative hypnotics accounted for 34% of drug-related ED visits. Shockingly, from 2004 to 2011, ED visits due to oxycodone and alprazolam increased 263% and 166% respectively. Simply impressive.
1: I think it's safe to say that this has already reached epidemic proportions.
0: Another important factor in choosing this topic
1: is that treating these withdrawal symptoms can be improved by following a stepwise, patient-specific approach.
0: So where did the recommendations from this review come from? Well, for this particular issue, their recommendations were derived from a review of 83 articles. Keep in mind that most of these recommendations are derived from consensus expert opinion and reviews and not necessarily randomized control trials.
1: Excellent. Let's start out with some pathophysiology. In general, for chemical withdrawal syndromes, the range and severity of symptoms experienced are related to the specific substance the patient is withdrawing from. The extent and intensity of the symptoms experienced are proportional to the frequency and dose of the drug used.
0: With that in mind, let's talk about the specific sedative hypnotic classes. First, we have the GABAergic agents. When GABAergic agents are taken chronically, the GABA receptor undergoes regulation. This helps maintain appropriate levels of CNS inhibitory tone without total sedation. In addition, the primary excitatory NMDA receptors are upregulated. To
1: reiterate, if you take gaba drugs chronically, you'll have a lower baseline CNS inhibitory receptor
0: activity and more CNS excitatory
1: receptor activity.
0: Exactly. So combining these two facts, it's the loss of inhibitory control of the excitatory NMDA neurotransmitter pathways that leads to the clinical symptoms of withdrawal that we all recognize. For example, the tremors, hallucinations, seizures, and autonomic stimulation like tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia, and diaphoresis. Making matters worse, the human brain is also subject to the kindling effect. The what? The kindling
1: effect. Without getting into too many details, simply take note that with each repeated episode of withdrawal from a GABAergic agent, the patient's brain becomes more susceptible to future episodes, especially seizures due to receptor upregulation.
0: Well, that's certainly troubling. But let's break it down one step further into the specific receptor types.
1: All right. So benzodiazepines and barbiturates bind the GABA-A receptor, while GHB, GBL, and baclofen bind the GABA-B receptor. When benzodiazepines bind the GABA-A receptor, the chloride channel opens more frequently, which increases the influx of chloride and hyperpolarizes the cell, thus increasing synaptic inhibition.
0: In comparison, when barbiturates bind the GABA-A receptor, they increase the duration of channel opening, increasing the chloride concentration, and thus similarly hyperpolarizing the cell. Of note, at high enough concentrations, barbiturate binding can open the channel without GABA even being present.
1: Unlike the barbiturates and benzodiazepines, GHB, GBL, and baclofen primarily bind the GABA-B receptor. This inhibits calcium influx and activates outward potassium flow, ultimately hyperpolarizing the cell, causing a chronic inhibitory effect. Just as we mentioned previously, it's this chronic inhibitory effect that leads to the excitatory syndrome seen in withdrawal.
0: Although the cellular mechanisms are similar, there are some subtle differences in the withdrawal patterns. Specifically, with GHB withdrawal, the symptom onset is usually rapid but mild, beginning in a matter of hours with initial symptoms of anxiety, tremor, diaphoresis, palpitations, GI upset, and insomnia. In severe cases, the symptoms can progress to severe withdrawal, marked by refractory agitation, confusion, hallucinations, delusions, and even delirium.
1: It's also important to note that GHB withdrawal can be unpredictable and can last days. One study cited an impressive symptom
0: duration of 4 to 15 days. Wow, that sounds absolutely miserable. The last drug to mention here is Baclofen. Withdrawal from oral baclofen typically occurs within one to two days, whereas withdrawal from intrathecal baclofen occurs within 12 to 24 hours after cessation. Baclofen withdrawal is marked by muscle spasticity, hyperthermia, dysautonomia, confusion, and agitation. While typically mild, in severe cases, this can lead to rhabdo, DIC, multi organ dysfunction, and even death.
1: Okay, I think that's enough pathophysiology for this week. Let's move on to the differential. I think the differential is best thought of by breaking into two
0: categories medical conditions, and the toxicologic syndromes. On the medical conditions differential, we have to consider any illness with a presentation that can be attributed to central adrenergic hyperactivity. By that, I mean any illness with symptoms resembling a sympathomimetic toxidrome. Some of the most important conditions to consider are hypoglycemia, heat stroke, encephalitis, sepsis, thyroid storm, and pheochromocytoma.
1: On the toxicologic syndromes differential, there are a couple of subcategories. Although the list is lengthy, I think it's worth running through them. First, you should consider the classic toxidromes. That's anticholinergic syndrome, serotonin syndrome, opiate withdrawal, and neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which all present with hyperactivity. Next, you have to consider a classic sympathomimetic overdose due to both illegal and legal drugs. On the illegal end of the spectrum, you should consider amphetamines, ketamine, cocaine, PCP. On the legal end of the spectrum, you should consider drugs like albuterol, ephedrine, and theophylline. Lastly, don't forget about the NMDA antagonists like ketamine dextromethorphan, and amantadine.
0: You weren't kidding. That list is long. But I think the most important point is that you should always remember that ruling out medical illness is of the utmost importance, especially when history is limited, as it usually is. That's a great segue into the next section,
1: pre-hospital care. Just as we discussed in the TGA episode, it's critical for pre-hospital providers to survey and inspect the environment in which the patient was found. Pay attention to possible drug co-ingestion and signs of trauma, as such data might not be available once in the
0: emergency department. If credentialed, an IV line should be established and a blood glucose level should be obtained. If a glucometer is unavailable, administering 25 to 50 grams of dextrose empirically is very reasonable. Similarly, if available, continuous cardiac monitoring is essential for all patients regardless of their mental status.
1: Hyperthermia should also be addressed and the patient should be cooled by any means available. Remember that hypothermia is common in such hyperagitated states. Hyperthermia associated with acute GABAergic withdrawal portends a worse prognosis.
0: And the last point for pre-hospital management, there's really only one pharmacotherapy needed for controlling the majority of medical and psychiatric symptoms that pre-hospital providers may encounter, and that's, of course, the benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are ideal for controlling agitation, combativeness, autonomic dysregulation, and even seizures.
1: We'll get back to treatment in a bit, but let's start out with the initial ED management. As always, IVO2 monitor. Abnormal vitals should be addressed promptly as IV access is established. An EKG should be obtained as quickly as possible, and the patient should be placed on continuous cardiac monitoring.
0: As we mentioned previously, the initial assessment should be focused on ruling out medical causes for the patient's altered presentation. It's clear from several studies that patients with a history of illicit drug abuse are at high risk of infection and intracranial hemorrhage after trauma.
1: In terms of history, focus on the dose and frequency of substance used, including any recent changes in medications. But also remember to elicit a family history that includes medications prescribed to other family members as well.
0: On physical exam, remember to focus on recognizing the toxidromes. Altered mental status, tachycardia, hypertension, psychomotor agitation, hyperthermia, diaphoresis and mydriasis. all point to withdrawal from a GABAergic substance. A normal mental status with vomiting, diarrhea, piloerection, and yawning suggests withdrawal from the opiates. There's a really concise and well-put-together table on page five of this month's issue that clearly outlines all the subtle differences in the various toxidrome. It's definitely worth checking out.
1: Let's move on to the emergency department diagnostic studies. Unfortunately, benzodiazepine levels in urine screens aren't very reliable. Most only detect benzodiazepines that are metabolized to oxazepam. Practically, this means that clonazepam, alprazolam, and lorazepam can give you false negative screens. While a mass spectroscopy can be used, those tests take far longer to conduct and aren't useful in the emergency setting. Similarly, tests for GHB are not readily available in most emergency departments.
0: On the other hand, lab tests that are readily available and may be useful are tests for alcohol, aspirin, and acetaminophen levels, which must be considered as co-ingestions. Additionally, a blood gas, lactate level, and basic metabolic panel may show acid-based disturbances and an anion gap, which may point to alternate diagnosis. There are also more subtle clues in the basic chemistries that may be helpful, like an elevated BUN and creatinine secondary to vomiting and dehydration, which may have caused the patient to stop taking their daily medications, which could account for their withdrawal symptoms.
1: And I think you forgot, perhaps, the most important of the studies, the lumbar puncture.
0: Excellent point.
1: In severe sedative hypnotic withdrawal cases, patients may present as altered and febrile. In such cases, it's imperative to rule out CNS infections as the cause
0: of their presentation. Absolutely. All right, let's get on to the good stuff here, the treatment. The key to treating withdrawal from GABAergic agents is the restoration of CNS inhibitory tone with medications that demonstrate cross-tolerance with that agent. For this reason, a gradual taper of long-acting benzodiazepines is the ideal choice.
1: I'm sure each one of our listeners can quickly produce dozens of stories of personal successes with the variety of benzodiazepines, but there's no great evidence to support one agent over another. In fact, a Cochrane review comparing the different
0: benzodiazepines found no difference in controlling severe withdrawal symptoms. In general, benzodiazepines with long-acting half-lives are preferred, such as diazepam or chlordiazepoxide. Diazepam has an incredibly long half-life of 20 to 50 hours, and its IV onset is in under 5 minutes. Chlordiazepoxide, given PO, has an onset of less than an hour, but it too has a prolonged half-life of 6.6 to 28 hours, making it another great choice for a gradual taper. Interestingly, both have an active metabolite, N-desmethyl diazepam, or nordiazepam, which has a half-life of two to seven days.
1: In elderly patients or those with liver disease, lorazepam is considered the drug of choice. Lorazepam undergoes only hepatic glucuronization, while diazepam, chlordazepoxide, and midazolam almost undergo hepatic oxidation, which is impaired in those with liver disease and many elderly patients.
0: If quick onset of action is desired, the typical agents to choose from are diazepam, lorazepam, and midazolam. In IV form, each of these has an onset of action in 1 to 5 minutes. Dazolam and lorazepam both have peak pharmacological effects in under 30 minutes, with midazolam being slightly faster. Midazolam has a half-life of 2 to 6 hours, and lorazepam has a half-life of 10 to 14 hours. In comparison to diazepam, which, as we mentioned earlier, has a half-life of 20 to 50 hours.
1: In some cases, however, when IV access is not readily available, IM administration becomes necessary. Diazepam is a radically absorbed IM and therefore not preferred. Diazepam and lorazepam were also prepared in a propylene glycol solvent, which can lead to sterile abscesses when injected IM. As an aside, this propylene glycol solvent can also lead to systemic toxicity. Midazolam, on the other hand, is dissolved in a water-soluble solution, making IM administration
0: easy. Once the initial symptoms are controlled, and likely the patient has been admitted, we must decide on a symptom-triggered versus fixed-scheduled dosing. For those of us that routinely deal with ED boarding, this becomes a very pertinent question to answer. In patients withdrawing from benzodiazepines, symptom-triggered dosing results in less total benzodiazepines used and shorter duration of treatment. This is something that both the patient and hospital administrators can certainly get on board with.
1: Much like the standard alcohol withdrawal protocols that many hospitals employ, there's also a Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment, or CWA, for benzodiazepines. This protocol uses a symptom-triggered regimen of diazepam based on vital signs and a scoring system. For more information, check out the link on page
0: 9. I'll definitely check that one out since I hadn't heard of it before reading this issue. All right, so I think we've exhausted the benzodiazepines for now. Let's move on to some other agents that have also been used.
1: Two agents which immediately come to mind are phenobarbital and propofol, which are both agents used in severe withdrawal symptoms for patients who are benzodiazepine refractory.
0: Great place to start. Remember that phenobarbital is a barbiturate and therefore acts by increasing the duration of chloride channel opening. Propofol is both a GABA agonist as well as an NMDA antagonist, making it an exceptionally good agent for refractory cases.
1: Good point, but they both have a narrow therapeutic index and can quickly result in respiratory depression. Both agents should only be used if the patient has a protected airway or the patient is in a very well-monitored location with airway interventions nearby.
0: Right. And there are some less commonly used agents as well that Dr. Santos and Dr. Almedo discussed, the first of which are the alpha-2 agonists.
1: Logically, alpha-2 agonists like dexmedetomidine and clonidine are great choices. They both attenuate the sympathetic overdrive response by decreasing norepinephrine release. As such, the use of alpha-2 agonists may reduce the need for excessive benzodiazepines and may decrease the incidence of benzodiazepine-related delirium and respiratory depression. Practically, they have been tested as adjuncts but never as monotherapy and therefore can only be recommended in combination with benzodiazepines.
0: In contrast, while beta-blockers may treat abnormal vital signs will not treat the underlying withdrawal pathophysiology, so they are not generally recommended. They may have a role in patients with severe underlying cardiovascular disease, but appropriate management of the withdrawal syndrome by the traditional routes will typically alleviate the cardiovascular strain.
1: Next up are the atypical antidepressants and antihistamines.
0: They have no role. Next.
1: Whoa, slow down. While the atypical antidepressants likely have no role due to their delayed pharmacologic effects, antihistamines may have a role in controlling the agitation and
0: insomnia associated with withdrawal. All right, that's fair. The last class of medications to discuss here are the antipsychotics. They only have a role in acute intoxication or at the very mild end of the withdrawal spectrum, as most of the antipsychotics decrease the seizure threshold and are therefore dangerous. One meta-analysis of nine trials actually found that when used as a monotherapy in withdrawal, the relative risk of death was 6.6. Now that's compelling evidence for me to stay away.
1: All right, the next topic is special circumstances. First up is managing critically ill patients. Patients in severe withdrawal may require endotracheal intubation in order to appropriately treat any one of the symptoms, such as severe hyperthermia, refractory agitation, or severe metabolic acidosis. Intubation may also be required to facilitate the administration of higher doses of benzodiazepines and other adjuvant therapies.
0: Aggressive cooling measures may also be necessary. Typically, external cooling with blankets, evaporative techniques, or cool IV fluids are sufficient but in severe cases, NG lavage, bladder irrigation, and internal cooling catheters may be needed. Take note also that antipyretics have no role in managing the hyperthermia.
1: Along similar lines, the next to the special circumstances is the refractory cases. There's a great figure on pages 10 and 11 that nicely outlines a commonly used treatment algorithm, but I think it's worth going over it here as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Let me run through from the beginning of the chart there. In cases of mild withdrawal and as prophylaxis, consider using chlordiazepoxide, which can be taken PO and has a nice long half-life, as we already discussed. If the patient is beyond the state of mild withdrawal, you should consider starting an IV benzodiazepine in escalating doses. There is decent evidence to support either lorazepam IV or diazepam. Lorazepam should be started with 2 mg doses up to a maximum of 40 mg total, especially in cirrhotic and elderly patients. Diazepam IV, starting with doses of 10 milligrams, up to 200 milligrams total, can also be used and probably should also be used for the reasons we already discussed. Mainly, it's very, very, very long half-life. If the patient
1: is still agitated, delirious, or has a heart rate greater than 110, the next step is to start escalating doses of phenobarbital or small propofol boluses. Phenobarbital can be used in boluses of 65, 130, and 260 milligrams. Propofol should only be administered in very small 20 milligram boluses, Unless the patient's intubated, in which case a propofol drip can be started.
0: And if, in the most extreme of cases, the patient remains tachycardic and hypertensive, as long as all the comorbid conditions have been safely ruled out, you should consider starting an alpha-2 agonist, such as dexmedetomidine or clonidine. Do note, however, that the evidence at this stage is relatively weak, and the recommendation to start dexmedetomidine is only a class 3 recommendation, whereas the evidence for clonidine is of an indeterminate class.
1: The last special population is the elderly. Be wary of empirically treating this population for sedative hypnotic withdrawal. The classic withdrawal symptoms are very difficult to distinguish from delirium secondary to a medical condition. If you are treating them for withdrawal, you have to be very cautious for multiple reasons. First, elderly patients typically have a larger percentage of fat when compared to younger patients. This alters the volume of distribution. Next, decreased concentrations of albumin result in an increased concentration of free drugs that are heavily bound to albumin. This makes interpretation of serum drug concentrations problematic. And lastly, liver enzymes may be compromised, resulting in impaired metabolism. If benzodiazepines are needed in the elderly, again, consider using lorazepam or even oxazepam.
0: Not surprisingly, with such scant evidence about managing severe withdrawal, there are both controversies and understudied new interventions pushing the field forward. The first controversy is the use of anticonvulsants.
1: That's right. Although some of the GABA analog anticonvulsants like gabapentin and pregabalin have been studied as an alternative to benzodiazepines, their efficacy has not yet been well established. They may have a role in reducing the symptoms in mild withdrawal that's being treated in the outpatient setting.
0: The next controversy is using GABA-B receptor agonists themselves. Believe it or not, baclofen, GHB, GBL, and 1,4-butanediol have all been studied in alcohol withdrawal. Although the evidence does not currently support using baclofen, Results of a recent randomized control trial indicated that using sodium oxabate, a salt of GHB, was at least as effective as diazepam for alcohol withdrawal. It's not quite ready for prime time, but keep it on your radars.
1: The last controversy for this month is magnesium. Magnesium has primarily been studied as an adjunct in alcohol withdrawal. Results have been conflicting. Magnesium was shown to have some positive differences against placebo and benzodiazepine withdrawal. However, other trials found no difference in the use of magnesium for alcohol withdrawal. Magnesium is believed to act as an NMDA antagonist. It should certainly be considered for patients who are known to have hypomagnesemia, hypocalcemia, prolonged QT, or delirium tremens.
0: All right, so that wraps up this issue on set of hypnotic withdrawal. Let's close out this episode with a quick rundown of the key take-home points from this month's issue.
1: Remember to always monitor vital signs for tachycardia and hypertension, especially in intubated patients and those that can't comply with a full neurologic exam. Vital signs can be an important indicator of inadequately treated withdrawal.
0: Aggressive cooling is necessary as hyperthermia portends a worse outcome in those withdrawing. A point-of-care glucose is absolutely essential. Benzodiazepines, especially long-acting benzodiazepines like diazepam and chlordiazepoxide, which have long-acting metabolites, are the mainstay of treatment. In the elderly and those with liver disease, lorazepam is the preferred agent. In refractory
1: cases, consider using phenobarbital or propofol boluses, which may require mechanical ventilation and eventually a continuous trip.
0: Avoid over-sedation by using adjuvant alpha-2 agonists such as dexmedetomidine.
1: Excellent. I think that's it for this month's issue, Jeff.
0: But before we officially sign off, we have a bit of a surprise. We were able to catch up with Dr. Santos for a quick interview and discuss this article. She offered some great insight, so let's take a quick listen.
1: Cynthia, thanks for joining us for this final segment. What would you like readers and listeners to take away from this issue?
2: Hi, Jeff and Autry. Thank you for having me. Well, my first main point I would like readers to take away is that vital signs are vital. They should be followed closely as they're an indicator of inadequately treated withdrawal. This may seem obvious but often vital signs are overlooked. For example, commonly used tools to assess withdrawal severity like the CWAS score and the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, the RAS scale, do not include vital signs. Vital sign abnormalities could be signs of inadequately treated withdrawal and should prompt you to give more benzos or other GABAergic drugs. You may want to even check kidney yourself, as oftentimes the respiratory rate is always noted in the EMR to be 20 for every single patient. Lateral side assessment is especially important in your paralyzed, sedated, and intubated patients where relying solely on the neuro will be limiting. For example, if a patient is disynchronous with the ventilator and is taking rapid, shallow breaths, this could be a sign of inadequately treated withdrawal. My second point is that proper quantities of benzos and other GABAergic agents should be used to avoid progression of withdrawal. When choosing the type or dose of benzo to give, consider the drugs pharmacokinetics, the patient's age, and renal or liver function. Remember that Ativan is a good option for elderly patients and patients with liver disease. But in general, benzos with long-acting active metabolites like Valium, or in mild cases, librium, are preferred because they are thought to result in like a smoother course and less chance of symptom recurrence. Remember to give librium early to those mild withdrawal patients that you're considering discharging or who you expect will stay in your department for a while, as this can avoid an unnecessary admission. And for refractory withdrawal that does not respond to large doses of benzos, other GABA agents like phenobarb or propofol can be used, which I believe you and Jeff already reviewed. Finally, my third point I would like readers to appreciate is that over-sedation can be avoided by using adjuvant therapies like alpha agonists. Dexmedetomidine is a useful adjunct for treating sedative-hypnotic withdrawal. and has been shown to result in decreased benzo requirements and also decreased days on the ventilator. The main adverse effect to watch out for with dexmedetomidine is bradycardia, which can be avoided with lower doses of dexmedetomidine infusions like 0.4 micrograms per kilogram per hour.
1: Those are some really great take-home points. In your article, you refer to easily missed conditions like the failure to recognize withdrawal or failure to recognize concurrent medical conditions or underlying trauma. What steps can we take in the department to help recognize these easily missed conditions?
2: Like many approaches in medicine, I think it's always good to have a system in place that you always follow. Similar to how you approach trauma patients with a head-to-toe exam or using a pre-sedation or pre intubation checklist, I think the same approach should be used to manage withdrawal patients. For example. If you have a patient with altered mental status and you conclude that his or her altered mental status is due to a drug ingestion or withdrawal, you should rule out metabolic, infectious, or trauma-related causes. A full neuro and physical exam should be done with patients who have altered mental status to detect possible trauma. I remember one time I saw an attending make this mistake once and told me during sign-out to, quote-unquote, let the patient sleep off his high and discharge him later when he's sober. After sign-out, when I went to go reassess the patient, I noticed anisocoria, and the patient actually ended up having a subdural. That was really scary. It taught me an important lesson, which is to beware of premature closure.
1: That's a story we all can learn from. I know your toxicology fellowship is ending soon. What are your plans after fellowship?
2: So I'll be joining Rutgers University Hospital as an emergency medicine physician and toxicologist. Dr. Lewis Nelson, he's there now as his department chair. And we're going to start a toxicology service and fellowship soon. So I'm excited to help get that on the ground and going. But for anyone else who's interested in toxicology, best of luck out there. We need you.
1: Thanks so much for joining us and authoring such an excellent article. We wish you well in your future position, Cynthia Santos.
2: Thank you for having me, Nachi and Jeff.
1: Thanks again to Dr. Santos and Dr. Olmedo for tackling such a tough topic and organizing it in an easy-to-read, coherent manner. Don't forget to check out the print issue, which can also be found online.
0: The issue also comes with 10 questions, which you can easily answer just by having listened to this episode. It's easy CME, so head over there now and get it done while you still remember. For any feedback and suggestions, you can reach Nachi and me at amplify at net.
1: Oh, and one more quick note before we finish up today. Join EB Medicine for their annual conference, Clinical Decision Making in Emergency Medicine in Ponte Vedra Beach, which is in Florida. Jeff and I will be there along with many excellent faculty members giving exceptional talks.
0: That's right. Evidence-based medicine, great speakers, the beach, golf, and maybe even a few cocktails. What more could you ask for? Head over to www.clinicaldecisionmaking.com for more information and registration information.
1: That wraps up our podcast corollary for this month's emergency medicine practice issue. See you next time.